You know, you keep mentioning the green room. I hope you didn't see Patrick Stewart in there. Um, although, if you'd said the green door, that would bring up a different movie reference. Bow, chicka, bow, bow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geomologist Presents. That was Jason Connerly at the top of the show. Thank you, Jason, for that message. A little context. The green room is kind of the room where performers kind of hang out uh, and uh, wait, got snacks uh, before their performance, um, drinks, snacks, whatever. And I guess they had they had something like that at North Texas, not North Texas, Chupacabracon, for some of the special guests that were there and the board members, etc. Um, and this movie, The Green Room, is a 2015 American horror thriller written and directed by Jeremy Solnir. I'm looking, reading from the Wikipedia and produced by Neil Kopp, Victor Moyers, and Anish Saviani. It, has, it stars Anton Yelchin, Imogen Poots, Alia Shawkat, Joe Cole, Calum Turner, and Patrick Stewart, yes, that Patrick Stewart from Star Trek, The Next Generation, etc., Captain Picard. The film focuses on a punk band who finds themselves attacked by neo-Nazi skinheads after witnessing a murder at a remote club in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, um, Patrick Stewart is the bad guy. He is the head of the neo-Nazi skinheads. So the green door, the green door... The Green Door, that's the third time I've said it, but it doesn't appear, is a 1972 American feature-length pornographic film, widely considered one of the genre's classic pictures, and one of the films that ushered the golden age of porn. It features Marilyn Chambers, who became a mainstream celebrity. It was one of the first hardcore films wide released in the U.S., hence the uh, pseudo-porn music that Jason referenced. So there you go, listeners. A history of green rooms and green doors. Um, hey, whatever suits your fancy, I do not judge. All right, so this show is a callback show. I got lots of call-ins, a lot of them from Jason Connerly, some from Joe Salvador, who clarifies and explains some of the stuff from Reaver, an exclusive, if you will, though it's not an interview, um, of some of the explanations in Reaver that I discussed or things in Reaver that I discussed, questions he might have, we might have. And uh, I have a call from some, I think Joe Richter is in here somewhere. And I also have a call from a new caller, Pink Phantom, who you probably have heard on Nerds RPG Variety Cast. And he calls in to uh, Jules and Joe Richter show, I believe, too. Jules uh, live from NZ and Joe Hindsightless. Anyway. Okay. Right. So it's callbacks and my response to them. And uh, let's get on with it. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. 
hey, Carl, I'm just starting your Chupacabra Con episode, but I don't think I called in about your other episode. Maybe I did. Has the whole droid slavery thing come up in your Star Wars game yet? Thinking about your previous episode where you did all the recaps? I wonder because, you know, there's recently been a thread over at RPG.net, and when you think about it, the idea of droid sentience is pretty well established in Star Wars. And we can have droid player characters in games. And in some of these series, that these apocryphal series since the Ewok movies that you watch, my understanding is these themes come up. And, you, you know, the idea of, of droids being slaves in the Star Wars universe. I mean, hell, the Star Wars universe has regular slaves. The, the fact that, that at no point during the Republic did they try to go in, and I, I realize Tantooine wasn't supposed to be part of the Republic, but still, come on. Um, so Star Wars has some big ethical issues in there, right? But the, the droid thing is especially interesting because it's used to show the Empire is evil by mistreating droids and the Republic is good or the, the Rebellion is good because they treat them better. But, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting topic. And I was wondering if it ever came up in your games. Hey, Jason, thanks for the call. I think it is one of those um, unfortunate oversights, maybe, by the creators of Star Wars. Droids are really sentient species, but they are kind of controlled by the whim of whatever either side, Empire or Empire Separatists, um, uh, New Republic, Rebels, etc. And I don't... No, I, it's come up in my game a couple times. So we ran uh, Edge of Empire for a very long time, and there was one episode that the player characters, the players remember very fondly because I totally duped them. They fell into the Star Wars trope that droids don't matter, and it was a attempted takeover and escape by the droids at a mining facility, and the player characters, I think one of the droids got away, um, and the player characters were none the wiser. They were told by the droids that, oh, no, our, our human masters have been captured and they ran from pirates or something like that. So they totally duped them. In this current incarnation of our Star Wars game in um, Age of Rebellion, one of the player characters is an old um, Separatist clone era commando droid. And he, they've already freed one droid who is also a commando droid. So I think, I feel like that character is plotting something. He definitely always brings it up. He, he loved that, um, that I got them in Edge of Empire. And I think that's a reoccurring theme for him is you know, droids aren't stupid. There is a droid uh, underground rebellion. Um, they, it's really cool that they did uh, allude to that in one of the Mandalorian um, episodes this past season. So I think, uh, yeah, it's there. My players uh, have touched on it. They definitely are aware of it, and I think they want to stop it. But that might get them in trouble with, you know, the powers that be in their little rebellion, Mon Matha. Maybe uh, Che Guevara, I mean, Saul Guerra, will, um, will listen to them. I've had the partisans approach them already because the player characters are a little bloodthirsty, and that kind of um, that has peaked. Saul Guerra's interest, but we'll see. Will the player characters be partisans or rebels? Hmm, interesting. Right, as Saul Guerra says to Mon Motha, 
the empire sees us both as criminals, no matter what our tactics. Cool. Next call by Jason. Hey, Carl and Amy. Listen to your recap. You just finished talking about Freedom Squadron. So how does it, Carl, in your opinion, compare to G.I. Joe, the role-playing game? The world needs to know this. We need to know how they compare to each other. Um, I'm glad you had fun with it. That sounds really cool. Savage Worlds is just such a great, great game. It's it's so... It, it, for heroic role-playing, cinematic role-playing, Savage Worlds is such a great game. And same with Barbarians Lemuria, but Savage Worlds, I think, is better as a generic cinematic or heroic role-playing game. I don't know that Savage Worlds does, you know, deep, dark, gritty as well. I mean, it can, but honestly, you, you want bennies, you want dice to explode and all that kind of thing, right? But I think Savage Worlds is such a great toolkit game, and I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Benny's flying across the table, and the Benny economy flowing is the ideal way for that game to go, in my opinion. I know some GMs do the, well, every hour I'll give you a Benny or two. But, you know, having a free flow of Bennies and people using them almost continually is a lot of fun, and especially in a convention scenario. It depends on the game, and, the, and if you're running a, a serious campaign, you might not do that. But at a convention, you definitely want that. So... Give us that feedback, G.I. Joe versus Freedom Squadron. Okay, back to the episode. All right, first of all, I'm not going to pick which one is better. They're both very different games with very different systems on how to play them, and I've enjoyed both. I haven't played G.I. Joe. I've run it, and I really liked it. I just kind of played the intro adventure in the book, and we didn't quite finish it, but it was definitely evoked G.I. Joe, and it is a you know, a licensed product. It is G.I. Joe through and through. It is G.I. Joe and Cobra. But Freedom Squadron, I think uh, one would say on the surface, it seems like G.I. Joe with the serial numbers filed off. But really, it's a military action adventure that, you know, um, the authors kind of state here that uh, harkens back to DC's Blackhawk, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, Megaforce, the toy lines, including G.I. Joe and Eagle Force, and then Centurions, Chuck Norris, Karate Commandos, Mask, Rambo, The Force and Freedom. So it's a military a, a action adventure genre that shares DNA with superhero and spy fi genres, masked villains, world-spanning secret organizations, and an emphasis on bleeding-edge technology, sort of in a, in a way sci-fi, the sci-fi bent, right? I mean, even they're even like blasters as opposed to, you know, automatic weapons or, you know, uh, bullets, I guess, sometimes. Hmm. Well, in, in the G.I. Joe game, they are, maybe? In this one, it's kind of bullets. Anyway, the antagonists of the genre are often outright supervillains dressed in distinctive costumes. They plot to take over the world with experimental tech and weapons of mass destruction. So it's like Spectre or DC's Legion of Doom. And that's kind of what the authors here state. And um, I have not met the authors of the G.I. Joe game, but I'm good friends with the authors of the Freedom Force, the latest edition, uh, and that those are Ashantate Bircher and Robin English Bircher. I didn't get to meet the other authors that were there. These are the lead writers and designers, but it was also um, Aaron Burkett, Scott Crossan, Bill Keyes, and Ted Pick Jr. Um, 
were also there. So, or a couple of those were also there, but I didn't get to meet them. Amy and I didn't get to meet them, but I'm very excited about this. And, you know, so excited about the books, right? So <laughs> we kind of did spend a lot at Chupacabracon and I probably will spend a lot at North Texas um, as well. Anyway, so I think, I mean, they're both really good games. I do like Savage Worlds a lot. Um, so I don't know, maybe would I adapt G.I. Joe to Savage Worlds or use Freedom Squadron as a totally separate thing? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, we have to get, we, it'd be cool to get G.I. Joe again to the table. I think um, for my home group, I think most people liked it, but a couple players didn't. Um, so, or didn't care for the genre, but some were really excited. Actually, I was shocked. One of my friends, one of my friends was like a G.I. Joe quote unquote scholar. Um, and I've talked about it before. It'd be really fun to run. There's a Call of Cthulhu, a pulp Call of Cthulhu um, big adventure path called uh, The Two-Headed Serpent. And it totally screams to me, G.I. Joe, I would you know, modernize it, set it in a modern context with the G.I. Joe people. And what I use, I don't know, shoot, would I use Call of Cthulhu for it? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, thanks for the call. Always inspiring to hear, uh, to throw, hear your, your challenges and your calls and uh, respond to them. That's one of the fun parts of the podcast for me. The Star Wars Savage World game sounds like a lot of fun. Um, hopefully, you, you didn't voice any of those concerns about canon at the table. That that would be an example of a bad player. It's totally fine to talk about them now, of course. But, you know, hopefully you didn't give the poor GM a hard time uh, about all that at the table. I'm sure you didn't because you're a reformed bad player now, Mr. Carl. And I, for one, appreciate that. Hey, Carl I, and Amy, I would definitely play in a pirate board game with you guys. If nothing else, your Chupacabra episode reminds me how much I miss playing with you guys. Maybe I'll try to make those Sunday morning sessions occasionally again. So I will leave you with an unboxing here. I have a book the size of a thin text a box from Lightning Source, the th size of a thin textbook. Um, I'm in the car, but it's roughly from my elbow to the end of the, my palm. And then it's about a hand width in width if you spread your fingers out. And it's about an inch wide. So let's open this up and see what it is. I don't know if you can hear me. I'm ripping it open here in the car. The car is stopped, by the way. Um, so let's see what Lightning Source has given us today. Oops. This is not opening as well as it should. That's sad. It's a hardcover book, actually. Wow. I don't remember ordering a hardcover from Lightning Source. It's BX Mars. So very cool. Um, BX Mars is done by Michael Gibbons, edited by Shandor Gebby. I'm probably saying that wrong. Additional editing by Jack Shear. And then there's art by folks. They don't have the artist list right there. I'm not sure who all does the art. But this is BX, but it incorporates a number of different things. So it's not just, uh, you, you know, it incorporates a, a number of different ideas here from Mars. 
It incorporates things like Lee Brackett's Black Amazon of Mars, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Apprentice of Mars in the first two sequels, Frank Herbert's Dune, Jack Vance's Planet of Adventure and Slaves of the Klaatu, or Klaatu, H.G. Wells' The Time Machine and War of the Worlds, Stephen Erickson's Dead House Gates, and Roger Zelani's A Rose for Exetius. Yeah, I can't pronounce that. Um, comics, Den, um, Prophet, Conan from Roy Thomas, Devil Dinosaurs, Commandy, The Eternals, films like The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, Heavy Metal, and Lawrence of Arabia. So this is a very cool book. You can actually get, pay what you want for the PDF. And the hard copy is really cheap, too, because all you're doing is paying the printing costs. So check it out. It, it's a very, very cool book. And I'm very happy to have it. Hey, Jason. Uh, there was no canon problems that the GM put out there. It was anyway post-season three of Mandalorian, so there was no canon really to talk about. And it wasn't as far as the hopefully soon-to-be-redacted 7, 8, and 9. So I didn't have any issues there. I Like I mentioned before, I did kind of get a little irritated at the player who's playing Mando, M Mando, who's playing Hondo, which rhymes with Mando, not really, anyway, uh, because of their, they're playing their character, um, but, you know, it's kind of like screw the other player characters in a way, but uh, I guess it was a funny resolution in the end, or maybe he realized, oh, what am I doing, maybe I should change this, I don't know, who knows? Or maybe because he got caught, which I guess would have been in, in character with Mando too. Oh man, I got caught. I'll just play it off type of thing. And uh, yeah, that BX Mars sounds really cool. I do have some Mars products. I think they're all on PDF though. I think I have, I feel like I have not just Space 1889, but I have uh, John Carter of Mars. And I also have another Mars I want to say, was it made by, hold on, let me check. I think it's Adamant Entertainment's Mars, and I have it either for a D20 system or maybe even for Savage Worlds. So, but that BX Mars looks very interesting. So many different influences, including Lawrence of Arabia, which stuck, stuck out to me. And maybe some of your players will, listeners, some of the listeners will pick up, players, listeners, same thing, kind of. Um, that you mentioned Steve Erickson's Dead House Gates from the um, Malzahn Chronicles, Malzahn Empire Chronicles, which takes place mainly in the desert. Maybe that's why. Uh, did they mention Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars? I don't know. Anyway, and that series, I kind of did. I started, I read the first one, started reading the second one. I think it's like a Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. And I started reading the second one and I... I can't end up stopping in the same place. I think I finished, I reread re -read Red Mars again, um, which was a very good book. But then the other ones, I just, I don't know why I bounced off them. Might have to go back to them. I know I have them somewhere um, in this house full of books uh, that I have. So thank you for that. And guess what? I have an unboxing for you. I don't know what it is. I have a suspicion. But here is an unboxing because it wouldn't be a geomologist to present without an unboxing. So here we go. This is a product that I just got today, actually, day, March 18th. Um, it is 
10 and 3 quarters by 12 inches, like one foot exactly. And it is from Oscar Rios from out of New York. And I will, it is, it's kind of like a bubble shrink, a bubble envelope, um, yellow bubble envelope. And I'm gonna use, I might have to use, I'm using a box cutter to open it. It just doesn't seem like it'll be easy to open. Um, like ripping it. So hopefully that preparates it enough to open it. And inside it's a double envelope. So inside is a priority envelope, U.S. Postal Service flat envelope. And this one I can easily tear. And ooh, it's got two books in there that I can see, both uh, soft covers. And maybe this is appropriate because I did you did mention I wanted to play with Amy. And, oh, it's multiples. It's uh, books and some other things and a screen. Okay, so it is. Britannia and Beyond, a setting guide to the province of Britannia and the barbarian lands of Caledonia. I don't know, was I supposed to get two of them? I don't know why I got two of them. That's uh, weird. Well, I have, it seems like I have an extra copy. Okay. I don't know if I was supposed to get something else as well. No, nope, I think this has everything. I think there's only supposed to be one book. I don't think there was like a, it's a current, Come, it has uh, 14 chapters and two scenarios, um, which is pretty cool. Um, I don't think there was another book supposed to be made, but hopefully if there was, well, and I got two of the same thing, that's pretty crazy. The other things are a, it looks like a screen of some sort with art, and the inside panel is a map of the Roman Empire, melee weapons, injuries, some other things and then there is a fold-out map of Britannia which is kind of cool showing all the different it's kind of more poetic than anything but uh, that's cool so that is um, the Kickstarter the Kickstarter a while back done by Oscar Rios and Goblin Golden Goblin Press and now, uh, which make a lot of fine products for Call of Cthulhu. And I'm going to have to call them and say, hey, I got two of them. What do I do with the other one? Which is interesting. Okay. Well, thanks for your call. And now we got uh, someone else calling in, Joe Salvador. Hey Carl, it's Joe. Uh, hey man, just calling into, you know, just said I listened to your uh, most recent. Um, sounds like you had a great time at ChupacabraCon. Uh, many thanks to you for running Reaver and for Amy uh, playing. Um, really looking forward to hearing your feedback, guys. Uh, you know, I, I realize that there's there's things in the game that aren't, you know, perfect. Um, I'm definitely w still working on some things, uh, and I'm kind of interested to hear if what you guys spotted are the same things that I feel like need work, um, largely revolving around like the um, the movement and the action economy sort of system, just wanted to be more streamlined and you know clear. So yeah, I'm still working on that. And actually, just like 
well, last Thursday, I think I, I after a few months of working on Demimond, I guess I'm a little bit of old, but um, I finally opened up that Reaver PDF, well, work document actually, it's not a PDF, um, and started going through that and making some changes. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll see what's up. Um, really kind of interested to hear, uh, you know, what Amy, what Amy was trying to get at as far as, uh, she said that, um, I can't remember her exact words, so I'm kind of paraphrasing, but it sounded to me like she thought the game would work better with a group as opposed to like a single player. I think that's what she was saying. Um, and if so, I'd really like to hear why she thinks that, because I haven't run it with a solo person. Uh, I've run it with two people, and it, and it worked pretty good. You know, on the GM side, you kind of have to, like, balance things. But um, overall, it, it worked relatively well. Um, and I don't know if it's maybe just the uh, interplay between players and characters or if, uh, if there was something else that, you know, that, that she thought of at the time. Um, yeah, and I'm really happy to hear that you think that the mechanics got out of the way because sometimes I feel like they don't. But I kind of chalk that up to me always thinking like, well, does this, how does this rule affect this other rule? Or, um, you know, if I change this, what does it mean? Or why, why did I write it this way? Or whatever. So I'm always kind of thinking about it. And it's really nice to have somebody else run it and, um, you know, say that, that, you know, that the mechanics aren't an issue as far as gameplay goes. Um, yeah. And I think also, like, I've only... I've really only played that online, so I wonder, other than at um, Origins, um, I feel like that probably skews uh, my thoughts on the game and how I'm uh, how I'm writing it, I guess. Uh, so yeah, I think, um, for instance, one of the things that came up when I ran it at Origins was that why aren't we using tokens for, for um, Resolve? And, you know, I didn't even think of that. Like, I don't have much experience with Savage Worlds at all, so tokens weren't really a, a thing in my brain, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it's a great idea, and I, I looked like you guys were using them there. So, um, yeah, very cool, very cool. Uh, yeah, anyway, looking forward to chatting with you about it, and uh, happy to hear that ChupacabraCon went really well. Sounds like some, some great games. Those Cthulhu games sounded great. Uh, but yeah, I will catch you soon, man. Later. I guess the other thing that you guys were talking about uh, with Amy's comment was that um, uh, a, a campaign play may be more interesting than, you know, like a one-shot play, or at least I think what Amy said was that you had a, a, a story with a beginning, middle, and end. And I think that's really interesting. I don't think that's a problem at all. Um, the game, you know, is designed to emulate sword and sorcery fiction. Uh, and sure, like a lot of those stories will have, um, will start in, in media res, but, uh, you know, not always. And even if they do, they have, there's some sort of sort of like quick backstory and then there's, a, there's, uh, the issue at hand and it goes from kind of point A to the point B and you get a, you get a finish. Uh, so yeah, I think that's, that's a really, uh, interesting comment. Um, yeah, very cool stuff, man. Anyway, once again, I appreciate it, brother. I'll talk to you. Hey, Joe. Raven God Games guy, thank you for that input and information. Just to clarify what Amy meant was that, I guess she didn't use these terms, but is what she, what I inferred from what she told me was that there is definitely a lot of niche roles for all the different classes and they worked really well together. 
and she feels like it would be very difficult for a solo player to accomplish everything because they needed like, you know, a thief, um, someone who had thieving skills in the group or was better at that in this case or ambushing. They needed like a healer. They needed a, um, a, um, well, I guess her and another character were the main fighter is her being a tank and one being like a, like more of a damage. So there was kind of, she definitely got the, the niche vibe and I don't know if that's intentional or not, Joe, but uh, that's, I think why she made that comment and her other comment was that, um, oh, campaign versus one shot. I think it's mainly my fault because I kind of cobbled together what I thought would work for a convention style convention time frame. Um, and it is kind of, it is, I think you're, what you put in the quick start is kind of a mini campaign with a beginning, middle and end. You start in Pentopolis, get the, get the quest and go on it and it can go in different directions. I think what I might do is start them in the wilderness the next time and they find the tracks and then have an incident where they encounter the slavers like you know that's like pretend it's a random encounter type of thing and then see if they stand and fight or if they flee or if they give chase or something i have some ideas for that and maybe we can talk about it later but um yeah I, what i what happened basically is i had them being chased and they came to a clearing and they could either stand and fight or go into the ruined city they decided to go into the ruined city and then from there, they actually set, um, they, I think they had an encounter and then they set up an ambush and it worked really well. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't flub some things, but I made some rolls to, uh, like, for example, like the horse didn't want to go into the city type of thing. Um, so it, it was interesting. It was, it was a pretty, I think it worked out really well. So the only, uh, I don't know if it was really an issue because it is really more of like, the vibe I got at the table. I felt one player maybe became frustrated because they were they were blinded by the big bad guy, and there I had him roll um, like misfortune every time. Although with all the buffs that they got, there were time you know they didn't get that many minuses on their attack or defense dice when they were fighting the guy uh, because of the buffs that the priest gave them and then some flanking and stuff like that. So. And then, so they're pretty good. I know Amy complained about the resolve versus peril in a, sometimes because she felt, and a couple others felt, well, uh, one other player felt out of the four players I had that it was too much, um, that the bad guys could do more than the, than the bad guys being the adversaries and enemies could do more with the peril than they could do with the resolve. I don't know if they took full advantage of the resolve. It's a lot to parse um, out, even though I gave them handouts in one, you know, in one sitting, I think, right? The second win thing. Although I guess it depends, right? It depends on your expertise level of play. Some people, I think, grokked it really quick. Uh, for example, the, um, the rogue type character realized that they could give resolve to other people, which that really helped. Um, the, the person who played the priest really got into the spell casting and understood it. And I even used some of the miscasts as like ways to push the story, which I thought worked really well in the narrative. Um, I don't know. I know that's not like intentional in the design, but because I think you put so much background 
and depth into the world and even into the spell descriptions and what they do um, that kind of lends itself to helping with the story and the narrative when there, when even there is a failure. So you don't fail forward intentionally, but you fail forward in a way that helps the story. At least that's what I, how I use something in there. Um, so I don't want to spoil anything, but we can talk about it. And I thought it was a pretty cool way. I, and I thought the spell casting, the guy who did the spells totally seemed to get into it and really found out how the spells worked, used them to their advantage. Um, so I think I think that player had a really good time. Um, I know at least one person maybe ordered it. I'm not sure, I think, at the table. Um, so, so I hope that is true. And um, I had a good time running it, that's for sure. So thank you so much, Joe, for your in insight and input. And on to the next caller. Yo, Carl, what's going on, man? I wanted to let you know that I really, really enjoyed your breakdown of Chupacabra Con that you did with Amy. That sounds awesome, man. I'm glad the two of you had a bunch of fun and we're having beers afterwards because sometimes that's what you need, right? After a con like that, you got to sit down, have a couple beers, eat some food, and just kind of talk about everything. It was a really awesome episode. Great to hear Amy on the mic again. And yeah, I can't wait for more, man. Take it easy. Peace out. Hey, Joe, thank you for those comments, and Amy definitely appreciates them. I'll try to get her on more often. Uh, we'll see. Um, maybe we, I can get her on to talk about Cthulhu um, and our kind of ongoing somewhat, sometimes solo, sometimes duet uh, Cthulhu game that we've been running. I think that would be a good topic to do. How does that work? How does duet gaming work uh, between us? Is it awkward sometimes? Can it be? Or is it because we're we're intimate with each other i mean we've been married for many years um that it makes it easier i don't know i think that'd be a cool topic uh, let me know what you think uh, thank you for the call and now we have a call for someone who's never i guess is a long time listener first time caller because this is the first time i've gotten one of their messages which i'm very excited about and uh, i don't sorry um uh, next caller i don't have a theme song for you yet i'm open to suggestions as you notice we have Wayward Son by Kansas for Jason Connerly, uh, Dr. Love for Joe Richter, Amana Mars opening, the opening of uh, Raven's Flight by Amana Marth for the Raven God, um, and other people have theme songs as well. So uh, let me know what your theme song might be, Mr. Pink Phantom. Hey, Carl, the Pink Phantom here. I think there is a difference between skirmish games and uh, pvp and rpgs because in skirmish games it's, it's built into the game so when you sit down and agree to play the game you understand that it's going to be a competitive situation whereas in an rpg if uh there hasn't been good communication or people you know sit down with different mindsets rpgs sometimes i think get the reputation that it's, that it's all cooperative all the time so it there's a potential for miscommunication there and and a surprise and maybe a little disdain if they get attacked by another PC. And there is, I think, adversarial play within RPGs that's not just, you know, within the flow of the game. 
but a lot of that has to do with the mindset of the individuals and how well the group the group gets along and communicates what they're expecting when they sit down at the table. Hey there, Pink Phantom. Again, thank you for the call. And I agree. From the get-go in a skirmish game, it's adversarial, although that doesn't necessarily mean bad-blooded, but I have seen arguments, no fistfights, but arguments at a tabletop skirmish type of game or at a tournament. But usually it's not about because it's you against me. It's usually because, hey, man, you're cheating, or that's not the way the rule says, that type of thing. And then they call for, like, a judge. Uh, so, so, and for me... It's never been contentious. It's always been fun. I know it's a running joke with one of my friends and I that I think I've only beat him once in a skirmish game from Star Wars Armada to X-Wing to Warhammer Fantasy Battle to Warhammer 40K to Privateer Press's War Machine. Um, yeah, he's always beat me. Even when one time I, I was, I, my Dwarven army fired a cannon at his Chaos Army and blew up his... Um, general his general demon but then he like us uh, wiped the floor with me well his army wiped up my dwarves from the table so yeah it's they're fun it's fun to do that i i guess for me rpg has always been more about cooperation like nowadays there's many cooperative board games um so it's just a different mindset and a different philosophy and i guess in the right context it could be okay um, I know that my players and I have been discussing, uh, maybe I said this already, uh, discussing like a, a Pathfinder 2 adventure path where it's, you know, it's kind of morally gray and you probably are rivals to some degree. Um, so I know the game Infinity by Modifius, a 2D20 game, there's like this, um, you're from different factions and each faction has their own agenda, and sometimes they 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 work at cross purposes. In the I guess it's called the Web of Mirrors or something like that, uh, for that campaign. Um, they're all working for an organization that takes representatives from from the different factions, which is interesting. So yeah, I don't know. In the right setup, in the right context, it could be pretty cool. But sometimes it's just kind of one player trolling the rest of the group. Or one player just being, I don't know, difficult, contentious. Again, my opinion, my experience, but to others, experiences may vary. And maybe that's the way you play. All right. Um, so with that, I think we will end this particular podcast. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for all the calls. Oh, we do have one more call in uh, from Jason Connerly, but I'm going to make him the closer because I'm always the closer. So you'll hear his his um, call with no response or context. Well, maybe there's context because Connerly does call a lot, and I totally appreciate it. Um, so if you've been listening to this podcast, then you'll understand the call that he's making. Uh, in any case, hey, uh, I've loved doing this and having this banter back and forth. This is a fun part of Anchorverse and the Audio Dungeon Discord. And uh, doing these podcasts is the interaction that we have. And if you want to interact more, you can email me at geomologist at gmail.com. Drop me a line. 
send me a voice recorded message. You can send me a voice recorded message as a direct message on Discord. I'm on a lot of Discords. You can find my handle somewhere there. You can leave me a message on SpeakPipe, um, which I have account and it's linked in the show notes. And you can do what Pink Phantom did, which is actually leave me a message on formerly Anchor, now Spotify for podcasters the web- through the website. Um, I wish they had a button where you could just do it directly, but no longer. And maybe they'll get it back. Who knows? Anyway, thanks again. And what did Amy say again? Happy gaming and good rolling. Hey, Carl. Good episode with your callbacks. Sorry if I sound a little bit negative in a couple of my calls. I'll try to work on that. I tend to listen to podcasts when I'm driving and off times. For some reason, yours fall in the drive home after a long shift. So that's not your fault. It's not your listener's fault. So sorry about that. As far as characters killing each other, you know, it's not always even a PvP or a competitive situation. I remember when Spencer, also known as Free Thrall, shot my character in the back in a OSE game and killed him. So... You know, it happens. Um, that, that was an accident. He missed and just happened, you know, he was shooting into melee and just happened to hit my character. Or he rolled a one or I, I don't know. I don't remember why he shot me in the back. Maybe he, he was just jealous of me. That, that, that was probably it. But, yeah, so it can happen even when you're not doing PvP. In, unless it was, you know, jealousy, in which case maybe it was PvP. Good night and good rolling.